We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela In episode two of how the Catholic Church came to the United States, we're looking at Colorado. In episode one, we did New Mexico. It only follows the new Colorado as the movement went north from there. It also went west to California, Texas, east to Texas, and a little northeast to the Kansas region. We're sticking with Colorado for episode two, and we're going to use the book Colorado Catholicism. In the Archdiocese of Denver, 1857 to 1989, that Dr. Thomas J. Knoll of the University of Colorado, Denver, uh, authored. It's out of print, and you can find it online. But we can do the. I'll just read from the first couple chapters. Really, is the main part. If you want to get the book, it's online and like Amazon. I think you can find it. Also, have a couple other books to use as well. So, in the prologue entitled The Hispanic Roots of Colorado Catholicism. He writes, European settlement of the Americas started with the Spanish. They were the first from the old world to explore, write about, settle, and Christianize what has become the United States of America, a fact sometimes forgotten in what has become an English-speaking culture. New Mexico and Florida, not Virginia and Massachusetts, boast the, er the oldest Christian churches in the United States. When Anglicans in Virginia and the Pilgrims and Puritans in Massachusetts Discouraged Catholicism, Maryland was founded in 1632 as a haven for Catholics and was the home of John Carroll, who in 1790 was appointed the first Catholic bishop in the United States, who in 1808 became the Archbishop of Baltimore. By 1840, there were 16 dioceses in the eastern United States. After that time, massive immigration of Irish, German, Italian, Slavic, and other Catholic peoples nourished a tremendous growth in the number of dioceses. The Denver Diocese, however, also had roots in the much older Church of Mexico. The Diocese of Durango was created soon after the city was founded in 1562. By the time the English pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, the Spanish had planted 11 churches in New Mexico. From these spaces, priests ventured into Colorado. Even before the Spanish and the Mexican priests came, Colorado's Native Americans had developed a culture that helped to shape Colorado Catholicism, at prehistoric settlements such as Mesa Verde, the Anasazi, Anasazi, Navajo for the Ancient Ones, had developed an advanced urban civilization with religion at its heart. Kivas, such as those at Mesa Verde, are the oldest churches to be seen in Colorado today. If you remember in New Mexico, they had kivas uh, in the, uh, not just the pueblos, but the uh, missions. 
in these mud and masonry temples, not Freemasonry, just masonry temple, just you know, mason. The ancients worshiped their God and asked for mercy and for rain. The sophisticated religion of these Anasazi survives in the rites of the Pueblo people in the Rio Grande Valley. The Catholic Church, with its 1,900-year-old talent for borrowing from for other rituals, has used some of these ancient rites of the Anasazi and the Pueblo. The Eye of God, Ojo de Deus, and the guard and the gourd rattle, for instance, are often used in mariachi masses. A few Franciscan friars may have wandered into what is now Colorado with early Spanish expeditions. Some say Fra Juan de Padilla, a member of Coronado's 1540 expedition, was the first priest to say mass and administer the sacraments in Colorado. Most modern scholars, however, find no evidence that Coronado actually entered Colorado on his pioneer probe, which, has, which got as far as present-day Kansas. A Franciscan friar, Domingo de Anza, apparently established the first mission in Colorado in 1706. Colorado's misty Hispanic heritage may hide earlier missions, but this was the first to be well documented. Fra Domingo was with the expedition of Juan de Ulibarri, who documented his excursion in the diary and officially claimed what is now Colorado for King Philip V of Spain. Fra Domingo opened his mission in El Cortalejo, an Apache village thought to be near the junction of Horse Creek and the Arkansas River, about 50 miles east of present-day Pueblo. Fra Domingo and his later missionaries began preaching among the Apache and converted some of them, with the help of chocolate and tobacco. In the summer of 1720, Don Pedro de Sur journeyed with Spanish troops and the Franciscan friar north from El Cortalejo as far as the South Platte River, which he named Rio de Jesus y Maria. Various Spanish parties and priests probed Colorado in the following years. Two Spanish Franciscan priests put this Terre Canida on the maps of the Christian world. Francisco Dominguez, a Franciscan superior of the missionary province of New Mexico, led the expedition. Fra Silvestre Velez de Escalante, the Franciscan missionary at Zuni Pueblo compiled the diary that made the Dominguez Escalante expedition famous. Among many other achievements, the expedition produced the first detailed map of Colorado. Clad in long brown or blue robes and broad-brimmed hats of the Franciscans, Dominguez and Velez de Escalante set out from Santa Fe on July 29, 1776, in the same month, the revolutionaries in the English colonies drew up the Declaration of Independence. The tiny nine-man Spanish party pushed on through what is now Pagosa Springs, Durango, Mancos, and Dolores, sprinkling the rugged landscape with the gentle names of saints. From a lookout that Velez de Escalata called Nuestra Señora de las Nieves, they surveyed the snow-capped San Juan Mountains. San Juan River Valley, Fra Silvestre scribbled in his diary was, quote, good land with prospects for irrigation and everything needed for three to four settlements, even if large ones. Continuing westward, the priests and their tiny party crossed El Rio de las Animas and El Rio de Nuestra Señora de la Dolores. On the Dolores River, they encountered the 
Anasagsa Ghost Village, now famous as the Escalante Ruin. When the Spaniards became lost, they prayed, quote, After begging the intercession of our patron saints that God might direct us, Fra Silvestre reported, we cast lots. God and the lots steered them westward over prickly terrain where they encountered a Ute village. The Spaniards used tobacco and white glass trade bees to recruit a guide. A short, friendly, dark-skinned Ute gave them jeered deer meat and dried fruits and led them to the Uncompregre River Valley. At the headwaters of this river, Fra Silvestre marveled at, quote, a spring of red-colored water, hot and ill-tasting. They followed the river northward past the future sites of Montrose and Delta to where it joined a much larger river that they christened El Rio de San Francisco Xavier. A century later, it would be renamed for another explorer, Captain John W. Gunnison. Continuing northward past what is now Grand Junction, the Spaniards encountered a Ute village of 30 teepees. Fearlessly, Fra Dominguez, quote, went into the chieftain's tent and, after embracing him and his children, asked him to gather his people. When the Utes had assembled, he announced the gospel to them through the interpreter. All listened with pleasure, unquote. When one Ute boasted of having two wives, Fra Dominguez, quote, grasped the opportunity to instruct them on this point. Quote, God's glory and the good of souls, Fra Silvestre added to his diary, inspired the Spaniards, quote, not to engage in trade so that the infidels might understand that another motive higher than this one brought us to these parts. With the help of the youths whom Valles de Escalanta described as, quote, all of good features and very friendly, the Dominguez Escalanta party traveled on north. They found the Indian petroglyphs in Canyon Pintato, near the future town of Rangeli. They killed and roasted a bison and finally reached the Green River. There, the Franciscans carved into a large cottonwood tree the cross of Christ, whom they trusted would lead them out of the primeval Colorado wilderness. Despite reports of gold and silver from the Dominguez Escalante party, the Spaniards would never plant a permanent settlement in, which, in what is now Colorado. Not until after the 1821 Mexican Revolution would Hispanics settle on the upper Rio Grande. By 1851, when San Luis became the permanent, first permanent settlement in what is now Colorado, the Mexican-American War was over, the land and the people were part of the United States. These new U.S. citizens were promised they could keep their own land, their culture, and their Catholicism by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the 1848 peace pact between the United States and Mexico. After the 1858 gold discovery near the confluence of the Cherry Creek and the South Platte River, some 50,000 Americans threatened to overwhelm the culture of these earlier Coloradans. Spanish surnamed pioneers of the upper Rio Grande Valley struggled to maintain their land holdings, their language, their culture, and their religion. In their isolation, they clung to their religion and to each other, sharing what little they had. To minister to these Hispanics and the Catholics among the mining hordes, the Archbishop of Santa Fe selected a frail-looking Frenchman, Joseph Projectus Mashbuff. In 1860, 
he was assigned a new parish, all of what is now Colorado and Utah. Father Matchbuff found an improbable ally in the famed mountain man, Kit Carson. This legendary explorer and Indian fighter converted to Catholicism in 1842 to win the hand of the beautiful Josefa Jaramillo, daughter of one of the most prominent clans in the Southwest. She was also a sister-in-law of Charles Bent. After Charles Bent had been installed as the first U.S. territorial governor of New Mexico, Mexicans and Pueblo Indians revolted in Taos. On the morning of January 19, 1847, they murdered Governor Bent. Although this revolt was quickly suppressed, both Indians and Mexicans remained restless under Yankee governance. Carson, one of the most respected gringos in Taos, helped discourage revolutionary sentiment. Defending the prelates assigned to Americanize the church in the Southwest, he warned malcontents, quote, We shall not let them do as they did in 1847 when they murdered and pillaged. I am a man of peace, but I can fight a little yet, and I know of no, other, no better cause to fight for than my family, my church, and my friend, the Senor Vicario Matchbuff. As the commander at Fort Garland in southern Colorado, Brigadier General Carson welcomed Father Matchbuff's services. When Father Matchbuff arrived at the fort in his buggy, he gave medals and holy pictures to the children and catechism books to their parents. Matchbuff was surprised and pleased at his welcome at the fort, where Catholic soldiers prepared and decorated an improvised chapel and served Mass, quote, as well as the best altar boys. First Catholics were these were in small villages along the Rio Grande in southern Colorado. And uh, I think the reason that French bishop or French priest at that point, uh, Joseph Matchbuff, gets uh, called in. Did I get the name right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Joseph Matchbuff uh, is called in. I think the U.S. had something to do with this after the Mexican-American War. They were trying to wean these Hispanic settlements in the American Southwest away from Mexico and away from the Mexican clergy. Uh, who were, uh, at least according to the French and the Americans, were scandalous in their behavior, raised children, had families, uh, and pretty much controlled things in a uh, not always appropriate fashion, according to uh, U.S. and, and uh, uh, French folks. So you bring in uh, Joseph P. Matchbuff is with them and helps found many of these new parishes in Colorado. Uh, and it's an incredible, I think it's something like 80 parishes that Matchbuff uh, founds between 1858, 1857, I should say, and his death in 1898. Uh, all colleges, uh, universities, uh, hospitals, orphanages, uh, an amazing record. Some thought he was a saint. Fascinating character, small, wiry Frenchman. Uh, Willa Catherine, a famous novel, about him, death comes for the Archbishop, called him the ugliest man she'd ever seen. Not a handsome man, <laughs> short man. He had been crippled by falling out of a stagecoach, so he went with a limp. But she goes on to say, of course, he was remarkable for his achievements despite his uh, uh, less than impressive appearance. I heard you, he traveled up and down the state of Colorado on foot or horseback. Is that true? I think he usually had a wagon with him, uh, which he had to pull back the tailgate and turn that into an altar where he would say mass 
uh, from the back of that. He probably also did travel on foot and on horseback, but he was best known for this wagon, kind of a mobile <laughs> chapel. Oh, wow. All around with visiting the various mining towns. And in these mining towns, there were, there were many Irish Catholics and quite a few German Catholics mm-hmm. and Catholics. So there was a heavily Catholic population there. And he would call them together. Usually they'd start out in a saloon for a lack of a church. And they'd uh, go upstairs to an upstairs hall they typically had in these saloons and uh, organize uh, a parish. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he would do is lock the door and say, we're not going to get out of here until you folks give me enough money to get a, a church started for all of you. And then they would have a big fight about what to name the church. And, of course, the Irish would always want to call it St. Patrick's. Mm-hmm. Germans had their idea, and the other ethnic groups had that, their ideas. But usually, you want the Irish seem to have been ram, more, more rambunctious and, and more this argument. So you have a lot of St. Patrick's churches in Colorado. The the first one is isn't uh, the first parish uh, was that Our Lady Guadalupe in the south uh, on the southern border or? Yeah, you're right. It was at uh, in uh, the town of Canales, Colorado, uh, Our Lady Guadalupe Church there, 1857-1858. It's founded. Although there are other small towns in the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado that claim to be older. The Viejo San Acacio Church, that's old San Acacio Church, claims 1856. And they make a pretty good case for it. So the way I resolved that was it was the church first church in an established uh, town was San Luis. In in your book, you mentioned uh, just like in New Mexico. Uh, uh, oh, here it is. Uh, Colorado's oldest church, probably the Kivas in Cliff Dwellings, those massive air day. Oh yeah, the Kivas. That's the prehistoric uh, Native Americans, the ancestral Puebloans who uh, settled in Mesa Verde uh, almost 2,000 years ago. And uh, some people say the first churches were, I'm glad you brought this up, Steve, that there were Native American churches or houses of worship before there were any Christian or Catholic churches. So it's important to remember that. And these kivas have been restored at what's now Mesa Verde National Park. And that park, because of its uh, human history, the ancestral Puebloans there, was the first uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site in the United States. It wasn't in New York or Virginia or California. It was Mesa Verde here in Colorado for these remarkable cliff dwellings uh, with complete with the kivas and pueblos or adobe houses there. Uh, so Mashbuff, he was, how many, how long did he reign in Denver? He was here, uh, he was the first uh, bishop of Denver I think around 1880, if I'm remembering. You, I hope you can fact check this in the book. I have it, have it there. We won't, we won't flog you over it. <laughs> 1889. Uh, and, but he's a priest from, gosh, I guess the early, uh, around 1860. Uh, uh, Bishop Lamy sends him up. Mm-hmm. I got the name wrong. It's Jean. I'm an old guy. Stuff comes to me slowly, Steve. You're fine. B. Lamy the first archbishop, the first priest, and then the archbishop of Santa Fe. And then as all these people pour into Colorado, he sends uh, Bishop, uh, Father Matchbuff, Joseph P., Joseph Projectus Matchbuff, up to Colorado uh, to bring churches to all of these miners, who they, as I mentioned, many of whom were Catholic. 
Now, what made him move up from New Mexico to Colorado? Did you, did you cover that one, or did you know? What made him move up? Yeah, that the make the, what what made him move up to send that the uh, bishop in New Mexico said, "Hey, you know, get go north." Because there were so many people, any Catholics there that they wanted to establish churches for, and I think the uh, closest bishop was in Kansas, and they said, "We don't have the staff; we can't do it. Uh, let New Mexico do it." And so this, this was one man, uh, Father Matchbuff, covering all of Colorado and then even Utah Territory mm -hmm. originally. How many uh, parishes did he establish by himself? Oh, gosh, some close to 100 parishes, I think, in Colorado that uh, Matchbuff establishes. There's an index in the back of that book that will give you the exact uh, number. But it's an astonishing number of uh, parishes that he could start it. Now, after he died, uh, did the next one carry the same, uh, I would say, fire as he did? Or uh, had it, was there a movement about the same, or did it kind of slow down a little bit? Or Yeah, it slows down a little bit because of the economics here. There's a silver crash, an economic crash, uh, where Colorado starts losing population when the federal government stops subsidizing the silver market. Uh, so there's kind of a tapering off there. And then Matz follows him, the second Bishop of Colorado. He's a German guy who's not as efficient or not as well liked. He seems to get into a lot of squabbles with his priests and uh, does help to build the great cathedral in Denver. Uh, opens up in 1912, Immaculate Conception Cathedral. Is that is that the same one that's there today? Yeah, it is. it's the one there today. And the Pope uh, celebrated Mass there and... Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful French Catholic church right next to the state capitol in the heart of the city. Yeah, I've been there. Was, I used to live out there. It was fantastic of a cathedral for United States means, of course. <laughs> I tell that somebody from Europe, and they're probably like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, Mother Cabrini. Uh, can you give a little background of her for being out there? Yeah, uh, one of the uh, big immigrant groups coming into Colorado, they were recruited to build the railroads and uh, worked in the coal mines were the Italians. So there are a lot of Italians here and Mother Cabrini from Italy. And as you probably know, she's the first American citizen to be canonized a saint. Uh, she actually travels all over North and South America, but puts in some impressive time here in Colorado of uh, founding an orphanage and also touring the state looking for her she puts it, my poor countrymen, those Italians, and she says, here they're treated worse than the animals are. They often are killed or die in the coal mines, and they just bury them there, leave them in there, don't even bring them up for a proper burial. So she's pushing for some uh, more respect and more rights for uh, Italians. Yeah. I, I did kind of the dirty work here that the Chinese did in California and the Irish did back east. You'll often find that these are the Italians doing the hardest work. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know about That was a good point. I didn't think about that being uh, compared with other nationalities on either sides of the, of the Union. Um, what are some stories that uh, may not have made the, made the cut in the book that you thought were fascinating but maybe left on the chopping block? Well, Mother Cabrini's story is, is a great one. Uh, Let's see. Uh, 
Matchbuff himself, he's called the man who cheated death because he was in many accidents and scrapes and somehow survived those to die a natural death here in Denver. Um, Archbishop Veer is probably the next most important figure in the church. He's here in the 18, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and he took upon himself to plant a Catholic school anywhere there was a public school. He figured he could use their their statisticians and their geometry and their figuring where the next growth was going to be as Denver suburbanizes and moves out. Uh, so for a while, he actually did keep this up. It's no longer possible, of course, to do that. Mm-hmm. did an amazing job of building churches. Um, the the priest, I guess. I, I should say building schools. Building schools. Start with a school. This is probably a pattern you'll find everywhere, but start with a basement and start with a school there, then have the mass set in the basement, then slowly raise money to build a church uh, next to the school, putting the children, the education uh, first. The uh, priest that got shot in the early 1900s in St. Elizabeth? Yeah. Are you familiar with that story? Yeah. Yeah. Trying to think of his name. Yeah, and our anarchist shot him as he was passing out communion there in St. Elizabeth's a church. And many people thought he should be canonized uh, for dying for his faith, as, as they put it. And I actually got to see the chasuble I think he was wearing with a bullet hole in it, which uh, Monsignor Anderson had, had preserved uh, as a relic of that uh, tragedy. It's, a, it's probably in the archives now, isn't it? Yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> One of the most interesting stories I got from one of my uh, uh, students, I teach Colorado history, and a North Denver Italian woman, girl, I should say, wrote a great history of Mother Cabrini's shrine. Mm -hmm. She would take her nuns up to the mountains for a picnic in the summer, but there was no water, and she touched a rock with her staff, and the water came up. And that water is still there today. People go up to get that water and drink it. And according to my student, uh, Maria, she said, yes, her family would use that water for everything. If the car broke down, you would pour some of Mother Cabrini's water into the radiator, and that would miraculously cure the <laughs> And, of course, it would cure you of any disease or problem you had. Did so you, it's a, a, a is, is, is Sacred Heart the one that she established? Yeah, I think they called themselves the Sisters of Sacred Heart, did they? Maybe, possibly. I couldn't tell you. Yeah, she was involved with Mount Carmel, the Italian, uh, the first Italian church here in Denver. Yes. yes. Um, so Sacred Heart, so Sacred Heart on the north side of downtown. That's that wasn't part. That was her home parish, maybe or. No, I think hers would have been Mount Carmel. Saint, uh, Sacred Heart at Twenty Eighth and Larimer yeah. was parish originally, and Jesuits originally. Okay. Okay. Heavily Hispanic, as as are many of these churches that started out as Italian or Irish. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Oh, there's a good story about uh, Archbishop Casey, mm-hmm. uh, who was here during the the uh, civil rights demonstrations and the Chicano movements mm-hmm. uh, and all kinds of agitation, and uh, they had a radical priest at Our Lady of Monk. What is it? At Our Lady of Guadalupe Parish was in a lot of uh, newcomers, a lot of illegal 
migrants and whatnot would gather there. And he was a this spokesman there, Father Laura was a, a, a radical priest pushing for social justice and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, the police came to Archbishop Casey and said, we want to raid that place. We think he's stockpiling guns and weapons in that church. And the Archbishop gave them permission to defy the sanctuary arrangement, you know, where a church is supposed to be off limits. Mm-hmm. So the church and they did find bombs of a certain type bags of pinto beans oh wow <laughs> in the basement for the poor that this church was handing out uh, to our poor folks <laughs> archbishop casey bless him our first irish uh, archbishop after frenchmen and, and germans uh actually went to that church and apologized but you don't often have an archbishop going to apologize to a priest no exactly but, and that story is in the is in the book uh how many did? How many nuns, uh, or how many religious orders in general, did uh, show up after with Bishop Matchbuff? Anyways, oh, I I think Steve, there are at least a dozen orders of nuns, and uh, they are the kind of forgotten heroes I found in Western history. They were out here ahead of almost any other women found schools and hospitals. Mm-hmm. There was no health care to speak of. There weren't private hospitals or any kind of public or governmental run hospitals, of course, in those days. So these nuns will be the first to open up the hospital in mining towns like Leadville and the Durango and Georgetown. And uh, had to, uh, the Sisters of Loretto were particularly impressive and the Sisters of Charity of Leavenworth. Mm-hmm. And they are building a church up in Leadville, I found, and even before it was completed, people would be d- dumping off old guys with uh, uh, pneumonia or TB, uh, leaving unwanted children there on their steps. And so they would hike them into even uncompleted churches and schools and try to take care of them. But uh, beg in pairs into mining towns, go down into the mines or into the bars and saloons on payday asking for contributions. And they would point out they didn't just take care of Catholics. They took care of everybody, no matter who, what religion they were or if they were irreligious. Mm-hmm. So they would often, I think, send a hardened miner off, not just to take care of his health, but his soul. Mm-hmm. And have him convert, be baptized, and on his deathbed go to heaven because he no longer had the energy to commit adultery or murder or, or felony or anything. So it's amazing what these uh, nuns did all around the state. Many of those hospitals are still around. Oh, yeah. Um, St. Mary's, uh, that was that came up pretty early in the establishment of Denver Diocese, right? That was the first church, yeah, that uh, Matchbuff founded, I think, uh, winter of 1860 in the town that's a year old, year and a half old. How many? Because you got a picture of the first confirmation class. Uh, how fast did that grow? Uh, really uh, quickly. Uh, there's the Colorado stagnates in the 1860s. Uh-huh. Then the railroads arrive in 1870. You have a huge boom. Uh, you let's see. In 1860, the census was 4,569, if I remember. No, 559. Then in 18. 18- 70, 10 years later, they say it's going to be a great boom city. The net gain was 10 people. So the town of Denver only grew by 10 people, and the population of the territory also stagnated. Then the railroads arrived. Then you have a huge 
a boom from 1870 all the way to 1893, where Denver goes from 5,000 to 106,000. Becomes the second largest city in the West, larger than Los Angeles, larger than any town in Texas. Wow. Mining and railroad boom. I'm sorry. And the church and uh, Bishop Benchbuff uh, try to keep up with that growth, establishing okay. those parishes and hospitals and whatnot. Speaking of hospitals, uh, St. Joseph's, uh, you got that down for the first private hospital. Is that the same St. Joseph's that's there now? Yeah, St. Joseph Hospital. Yeah, that's there. That's currently there now. Is that the same? Yeah, it's location? the same St. Joseph that's here with us today. Yeah, founded back way 1874, mm -hmm. and uh, still uh, famous for having more babies born there than any other hospital. <laughs> that's that's pretty neat. Um, can you speak on the Saint Sisters of Saint Francis or Perpetual Adoration? Say that again, Steve. Can you speak of the Sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration? The group in 1884? I hope they're in there, but I'm... Oh, I think they founded hospitals, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah, the Franciscans, yeah. And active in Colorado Springs, I think. Hopefully I treat them under a section in there. They are. Yeah, they are. Uh, I got little bookmarks on. Oh, they did the railroad hospitals, didn't didn't they? Working with yes, the, Union Pacific, uh, the uh, small Denver hospital for Union Pacific Railroad mm -hmm. that evolved into St. Anthony's hospital systems. Yeah, St. Anthony's is a huge hospital today, one of the biggest in, in the Denver area. It's located out in Golden today. Yes, yes, that's right. All right. Make that Lakewood today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no Lakewood back then. If Father Mashbuff ever complained about his American assignment, his letters and his biographer do not reveal it. Yet this harsh new frontier must have left him homesick for France, which he visited whenever the rare opportunity arose. He longed to see his cherished sister, who became a nun and took the religious name he chose for her, Sister Maria Philomena. He also missed his younger brother, Marius, and his father, a master baker. They lived in Rion, in the southeast central French province of Avignon, where Mashbuff had been born August 11, 1812. Avignon was a land not unlike Colorado with its hills and deep river gorges, hot springs, and the mountains, but Colorado farmers would never produce the fine wines and cheeses that made it famous. Memories of such delicacies left Mashbuff even more hungry and thirsty for his homeland. Encouraged by his pious mother, who died when he was 13, young Joseph had attended a Christian brother's school in Rion and then enrolled in the seminary at Mont Fernand, which was conducted by the Sulpician Fathers. He was ordained December 21, 1836. Avignon province was blessed with many more religious vocations than positions and sent its priests all over the world as missionaries. When John Odin, who later became Bishop of Galveston and Archbishop of New Orleans, came recruiting priests for the missions of America, young Mashbuff volunteered. Father Mashbuff sailed from La Havre in June on July 9, 1839. On board, he relished the salt air and the spirited company of a childhood friend and fellow seminarian, Jean-Baptiste Lamay. 44 days after leaving France, they arrived in New York, 
The two young missionaries were delighted to be welcomed by other French priests, including the Bishop of New York City. Matchbus' first assignment was to a small town in Tuffin in northern Ohio. After a year as assistant pastor there, Mashba became a founding pastor of Holy Angels Parish in Sandusky, where he served until 1849. Father Mashba absorbed himself in learning English, American ways, and parish administration. He discovered that his new countrymen were fighting and winning a war far away in the Southwest. After Mexico's defeat, the United States acquired vast new territory that would become the states of New Mexico, Arizona, California, Nevada, Utah, and part of Colorado. While the U.S. governor tried to establish civil control over the Southwest, the American church hierarchy grappled with the problem of Americanizing what had been Mexican parishes. In 1850, Father LeMay was vicar apostolic in charge of New Mexico and Arizona, headquartered in Santa Fe. Father Mashbuff had grown comfortable and even fond of, quote, my dear Sandusky. When Father LeMay, quote, grasped my hand and summoned me to keep my part of the agreement which we made never to separate. At the new vicar apostolic's instance, Father Mashbuff became the vicar general in New Mexico. The two Frenchmen steamed down the Ohio and Mississippi to New Orleans, then procured an army escort across the plains of Texas, noted for hostile Comanches and Desperados. From El Paso, LeMay, and Matchbuff followed the Rio Grande River route northward to Santa Fe. Matchbuff reported that, quote, General Stephen W. Kearney, whose wife is a Catholic, gave us the privilege of drawing rations each week from the government supplies and of paying for them at government prices. General Kearney also loaned the clergyman an army tent but Mashbuff reported that, quote, the nights were so calm and beautiful that we almost always slept out in open air. After a 400-mile trip across, quote, a formidable desert, where many human bones tell the tale of Indian slaughter, Mashbuff wrote, they received a cool reception from the Hispanics of Santa Fe. Over half the Mexican-American clergy eventually left New Mexico rather than serve under the new French-American hierarchy. Upon their entry into Santa Fe on August 8, 1851, LeMay and Mashbuff were welcomed by the local Indians. Mashbuff reported that 8,000 and 9,000 Native Americans wearing, quote, gaudy and grotesque costumes built triumphal arches, spread their shawls and cloaks to the, on the ground for us to walk on, and welcomed them with the docility of children. This righteous welcome, Mashbuff added, left Santa Fe's four Protestant ministers, quote, filled with rage and envy. The Mexican vicar of Santa Fe, Monsignor Juan Felipe Portes, had reservations about recognizing LeMay. Only after LeMay made a difficult 1,500-mile journey to see the Bishop of Durango, Jose Antonio Lararano Lopez de Zerebe y Escalanta, did Vicar Ortiz surrender the New Mexican church property. Padres Jose Galeos of Albuquerque, Antonio Martinez of Taos and some other Mexican priests continued to challenge some of the reforms imposed by the new vicar apostolic. Lame often sent his assistant, the loyal Matchbuff, out to the provinces to deal with these difficult cases, which ultimately were appealed to Rome. In a May 31, 1852 letter to his sister, Matchbuff reported that the Santa Fe Vicariate, which included New Mexico, Arizona, and part of Colorado, was a vast, quote, 
vineyard so overrun with thorns and thistles. Mashbuff courageously and persistently tried to discipline the rebellious Mexican priests. Quote, Bishop LeMay is sure to send me where there is a bad case to be settled. Mashbuff once wrote his sister, I'm always the one to whip the cats. In 1853, LeMay's vicariate was made a diocese and he a bishop. Mashbuff was appointed pastor first at Albuquerque, 1853-1858, and then Santa Fe, 1858-1860, while also attending missions throughout New Mexico, Arizona, and southern Colorado. Rumors flew that Mashbuff would be appointed vicar apostolic of Arizona with headquarters at San Xavier del Bac Mission in Tucson. These rumors did not end until Mashbuff's 1860 appointment as Vicar Apostolic in Colorado and Utah. On his missionary travels throughout Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah, Mashbuff logged over 100,000 miles. He traveled in a wagon outfitted with a square canvas top so that he could sleep inside. This heavy carriage had side curtains, a half curtain in front to be let down in case of storms, and a tailgate that could be lowered and used as an altar. Inside what he called his ambulance, Mashbuff had fixed up compartments for his mass vestments and vessels, as well as hay for the mules and food, a frying pan, and a coffee pot for himself. He also kept close at hand his rosary, his breviary, and his copy of Thomas Compass's The Imitation of Christ. This rolling church and rectory was pulled by two Mexican mules, which Mashbuff found more durable than American horses. Whenever possible, Mashbuff preferred to sleep outside in his buffalo robe under the southwestern stars. This short, wiry Frenchman became tough and tan after enduring sunstroke and blizzards, cactus and lice. Willa Cather, in her novel Death Comes to the Archbishop, created a vivid portrait of the man who toiled in that rough vineyard. Quote, Crimson from standing over an open fire, his rugged face was even homelier than usual. Though one of his first things a stranger decided upon meeting Father Joseph was that the Lord had made few uglier men. He was short, skinny, bow-legged from a life on horseback, and his countenance had little to recommend it but kindness. He looked old, though he was then about 40. His skin was hardened and seamed by exposure to weather and a bitter climate. His eyes were nearsighted and of such a pale, watery blue as to be unimpressive. He was homely, real, persistent, with the driving power of a dozen men in his poorly built body. On one of the many cross-country treks, a follower priest complained of the howling wolves at night. Those are only coyotes, Mashbuff reassured him and added, quote, You dreaded the monotony of the plains. You have to be glad to have a free band to ser serenade you. When spirits or health flagged seriously, Mashbuff might retreat to his wagon and bring out a bottle of French wine. On Matchbuff's 1860 journey from Santa Fe to Denver to establish St. Mary's Parish, he and Father John Baptiste Reverdy stopped at the Pioneer Catholic Church in Colorado, Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe de Conejos. To get to Conejos, they had to follow a tributary up the stream of the Rio Grande that flowed out of the San Juan Mountains into a broad valley of San Luis. Some said the tributary was called Conejos because it ran as swiftly as a rabbit. Others said it was because of all the jackrabbits in the area. Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe, the patroness of Mexico, had guided Mexican settlers up the Conejos River, according to local folklore. A mule had refused to move on after the immigrants stopped at a cottonwood-shaded site 
on the Conejos, 19 miles west of the Rio Grande. The party had cursed, pushed, and pulled, but the beast would not budge. Then someone pointed out that this was the mule carrying the image of Our Lady Guadalupe. Surely this was a sign from heaven. On that spot, the village of Guadalupe was founded in 1854. The Cornejos River flooded the town that spring, and Indians ambushed shepherds as they headed out of the fields one morning. Jose Maria Jaquez and other leaders decided to, fl- to move the settlement to higher ground and rename it Conjoles. There, these Mexican pioneers constructed a plaza rimmed with adobe buildings to keep in the sheep, goats, pigs, cattle, mules, and to keep out the Apaches and the Utes. Together, settlers dug the Conojes ditch to water corn and wheat, beans, and peppers. To grind their corn and wheat, townsfolk started one of the Colorado's first grist mills. They also decided to take up Bishop Lamay's offer. While visiting in 1854, the bishop had promised to send a priest if the people would build a church. With the communal energy that made Conejos one of the first successful colonies in Colorado, they went to work and in 1857 celebrated completion of their church, which they called Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe. In 1854, Father Matchbuff said his first Colorado Mass at the Little Chapel at Conejos. It was a primitive jackal built of cedar posts stood on end and lashed together in stockade fashion. Adobe mud was plastered over to fill the cracks. This structure, though altered greatly over the years, is the oldest surviving Christian church in Colorado, but it is not, as is sometimes stated, the first. Louisa Word Arps in The Faith of the Frontier, Religion in Colorado Before August 1876, pointed out that the first non-Indian church in Colorado was apparently a Mormon log meeting house built in Pueblo in 1846 and in use for several years before the Arkansas River flood swept it away. Initially, the Conejos Church was intended by, as a mission by priests from Ojo Caliente, Arroyo Hondo, and Taos, three New Mexican parishes. In 1858, Bishop LeMay sent the resident pastor, Jose Vicente Montano. Father Montano founded a second Southern Colorado parish in 1860 at San Luis, the pioneer settlement on Culaba Creek. The San Luis Church, Sangre de Cristo, became an independent parish with his own pastor, Joseph Perchevalt, in 1869. Sangre de Cristo Parish helped establish and ten mission chapels at a dozen towns on the eastern side of the San Luis Valley, including Chama, San Achato, Chatio, San Francisco, San Pedro, Sierra Blanca, Tricheria, and Zapato. Gabriel Usel, who spent many years as a priest in the San Luis Valley, recalled in his unpublished memoirs how he and Fala Matchbuff traveled to the tiny villages for each town's feast day. Before dawn, by the light of pinion wood fires, priests and villagers met for the morning chanted mass, the procession, and that little world of people came from everywhere to participate in the religious festivity and the usual innocent amusement of the happy people. Guadalupe at Canjoles became the mother church for at least 25 missions in the San Luis Valley and the San Juan Mountains to the west, including Amorosa, Antonito, Capulian, Cat Creek, Cheritos, Cumbres, La Jara, Mesitas, Usier, Pagosa Springs, and the mining camps of the headwaters of the Animas River. 
Some of these missions became churches, such as Sacred Heart Parish and Alamosa. Others had disappeared, as have some other towns. Many settlements that had oratories, if not chapels, had vanished, leaving only forlorn little cemeteries and fragile folklore clues to now vanished Mexican villages. While villages and missions came and went, the pioneer church of Conejos thrived. The Jesuits took over in 1871 with the arrival of Father Salvatore Persone. He soon was joined by three other Jesuit priests and, in 1877, Guadalupe Parish built a convent and the school for the Sisters of Loreto, who opened Sacred Heart Academy as a private school and also taught in the public schools. Father Mashbuff and his countryman, Father Reverde, arrived in Denver on October 29, 1860. As Mashbuff wrote later, they were, quote, obliged to camp out on the two bare lots donated by, in Denver by the Express Company and having no neighbors but squirrels, prairie dogs, and rattlesnakes. We walked around to see, not the city, but the little village of Denver, made up of low-frame stores, log cabins, tents, and Indian wigwams on the banks of the Platte. A handful of Catholics in Denver had acquired two lots at 15th and Stout Streets and material to build a 50 by 30 foot chapel. This pile of bricks and shingles was shown to us way out on the prairie, Mashbuff reminisced. We all said, quote, what a folly to build a church so far from the town. Although in those days I was not lame, it tired me to walk to the spot. We could not continue to camp in the big city of Denver, so I contracted to have a house built in eight days for $75 in the rear of the church. In the little shack tackled onto the rear of the church, Mashbuff and Reverde used, quote, our coats for a pillow and a mattress made of buffalo robe. Mashbuff begged, borrowed, and bought materials, then recruited volunteer labor to complete the church in time to say the first mass on Christmas Eve, 1860, and the windowless, unplastered church. On Christmas morning, Father Reverde sang a second Mass in Latin, covered by his rich French accent. Father Mashbuff, who said the rosary daily, named the church for a special love, St. Mary. Our people, he noted, were proud to have the first brick church in Denver. Mashbuff acquired a fine new Gothic case organ, according to the Rocky Mountain News of January 22, 1863, and St. Mary's began offering classical masses by composers such as Mozart. Yet the church from windowless and under church for the Catholics of Denver. Slowly, the slender, cultivated French priest settled in at the raw frontier crossroads several hundreds of miles from any city. He began to appreciate why Bishop John Meige, the first vicar apostolic of Kansas, had requested that Denver Parish be transferred to the Diocese of Santa Fe, even though Colorado East of the Rockies, north of the Arkansas, and south of the 40th parallel was part of Kansas until the creation of Colorado Territory in 1861. Mage, a Jesuit scholar turned bishop, had toured Denver in the spring of 1860 and on May 27th said the first city's mass in Garrard's store on the corner of 15th and Market Streets. Garrard, a merchant from Paris, France, who was Denver's first lay leader, and Bishop Mage persuaded the Denver City Town Company and Leavenworth and Pikes Peak Express Company to donate Block 208 and much of Block 139 to the Catholic Church. Block 208, which is 15th and 16th Streets between Court and Tremont places, and Block 139, 
which is now 15th to 16th streets between California and Stout, were both on the outskirts of town that would become valuable as Denver grew. After thus securing a toehold in Denver, Bishop Mays touring the mining regions, Central City, South Park, and Oro City. Of his Colorado tour, he wrote that, quote, at least 100,000 men are bound for Pikes Peak. I am doing all I can to dissuade the Catholics from going, firmly convinced, as I am, that danger for the body and soul is inevitable there. And for one who may succeed there, will be at least 50 who will be ruined forever. Mays wrote, wrote to the Archbishop of St. Louis, Peter Richard Kenrick, requesting that he petitioned Rome to transfer the Pikes Peak region to the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Santa Fe. Bishop Mage confided to his brother on July 15, 1860, quote, This will be my first and, la and my last trip to the mountains because Rome has seen fit at my request to confide the administration of that part of Kansas to the Bishop of New Mexico. My burden has thus been alleviated. May the good God be blessed for it. Santa Fe, Mage pointed out, was only 350 miles from Denver, while Leavenworth was over 500 miles from Denver. Bishop LeMay, despite his severe shortage of priests, reluctantly accepted the responsibility for Pikes Peak region. Quote, I do not like to part with you, he told his lifelong friend and Vicar General Father Mashbuff, but you are the only one I have to send, and you are the very man for Pikes Peak. LeMay could only smile and concede, when Mashbuff agreed on the condition that he be given an assistant, young Father Riverde, and a little cash before remarking on his monumental mission. From his headquarters in the wooden shed behind St. Mary's Church in Denver, Father Mashbuff resided over his huge parish. Once St. Mary's was completed, he responded to urgent appeals to visit the new mining towns along Clear Creek. On this mountain stream, John H. Gregory had found a mother load in Gregory Gulch in 1859. Almost overnight, Mountain City, Blackhawk, Central City, Nevadaville, Russell Gulch, and a dozen smaller gold camps sprang up in the area hastily organized by Gilpin County. By the spring of 1861, Central City and the satellite mining towns had more people than in Denver. Mashbuff hitched up his mules and buggy and joined the throng streaming up Clear Creek Canyon. The masses were in search of gold, while the priest was determined to establish the first mission of his Denver parish. Upon arrival in Central City, Mashbuff reported, quote, The only place I could find to say Mass in was a kind of a theater, and I had to put up the altar on the stage. A pretty good number of Catholics and others attended. On my second visit, Mass was said in a vacant billiard hall and required the work of two good men to clean and scrape the floor. On Mashbuff's third visit, he said mass in a, a dance hall and on the fourth in an empty storefront, quote, tired of looking at every visit for a new place. I posted a safe man at the door and told him to lock the door and bring me the key. Which his central city parishioners thus corralled, Mashbuff announced, quote, now my good men, none of you will go out until you contribute or subscribe for a church. John B. Fitzpatrick, a mining man, laid $50 in gold dust on the altar, and others followed his example. A central city parish was organized and named at Mashbuff's urging St. Mary's. By 1862, Mashbuff had purchased a house at 135 Pine Street and converted it to a church whose membership grew even more quickly than that of St. Mary's in Denver. A school and convent was added in the 1870s. 
Mashboff sent Father Riverde to be the first pastor in Central City. When he received a third priest for Colorado, Thomas M. Smith, he assigned him to Central City and returned Father Riverde to Denver. Mashboff's second mission was not founded until 1866 on the South Fork of Clear Creek in Colorado's pioneer silver mining town, Georgetown. Our Lady of Lourdes Parish thrived during one of the most ablest of Mashboff's priests, Nicholas Matz, who established a hospital as well as a school in the Silver City that became a Clear Creek County seat. The other large town in that county, the gold mining and the Hot Springs tourist town of Idaho Springs, gained its own parish, St. Paul's, in 1881. Mashboff and Reverde spent much of their time traveling through the mountain mining camps, saying Mass and offering the sacraments. While among the highest mountains of Colorado Gulch, Mashbuff wrote to his brother Marius in 1862, quote, I fell sick of the mountain fever and was two months without being able to say Mass. Concerned, Bishop LeMay ordered his Colorado pastor back to New Mexico to recuperate. The, quote, care and good old wine of Father Palette contributed not a little to the reestablishment of my strength, Mashbuff assured his brother. The following year, Mashbuff suffered an even more serious mishap when his buggy overturned on the Big Hill Road to Central City. A doctor hurriedly and inexpertly set his priest's broken leg, leaving him with a permanent and painful limp. The hardships he endured did not bind Matchbuff from the glory of the rugged peaks he labored among. Archbishop Sapointe of Santa Fe recalled, eulogizing his fellow priest, quote, Oh, how he loved these mountains. I have heard him tell of the beauty and their splendor and how they seemed to him like great, strong, lonesome prayers reaching up to heaven. Despite disabilities, Mashbuff traveled to Utah, the western half of his parish. He visited with Brigham Young, head of the Mormon church in Salt Lake City, and made arrangements to send a priest. Father Reverde and Father Smith took turns at trying to plant a church among the Mormons with little success. Mashbuff did receive one bit of welcome mail from Salt Lake City, however, when Father Reverde sent him a box of peaches. Mashbuff sold them for a dollar each in Denver to pay for the desperately needed improvements at St. Mary's. The most audible improvements were lugged out of St. Louis and Oregon and Denver's first church bell, an 800-pounder hauled by oxen across the plains at a cost of $305.90. It could be heard five miles away and became the town bell as well as the church bell. This bell blew over and broke during a windstorm in the fall of 1864. It was replaced in 1865 by a 2,000-pounder. In 1867, Mashbuff established the 4th Denver Mission, St. Joseph's in Golden City, seat of Jefferson County, and the 5th, Sacred Heart of Mary in Boulder, seat of Boulder County. Boulder became the first town in Colorado with two Catholic churches when Mashbuff authorized creation of Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in South Boulder in 1875. St. Louis Parish in the coal mining town of Louisville became the third Catholic church in the Boulder area in 1884. Reverend Henry Robinson, who in 1874 had started a mountain parish in Fairplay, joined the rush to Leadville, where he founded Annunciation Parish in 1879. Many of the miners pouring into Leadville were Catholics, particularly the Irish, German, Slavs, and Italians. Soon Leadville boasted St. Mary's School, opened by the Sisters of Charity of Leavenworth in 1882, St. Joseph's Slavian Catholic Church, St. Vincent Catholic Hospital, a Catholic Hall, 
Catholic Club Rooms, and St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery. When silver was found in Aspen, Mashbuff authorized the establishment of St. Mary's Mission and became the independent parish in 1881. Edward Downey, the pioneer priest at Aspen, also founded St. Stephen's Parish in 1885 in Glenwood Springs. Silver discoveries in the San Juan Mountains in southwestern Colorado triggered the rise of towns and parishes. St. Columba Church, founded in Durango in 1882, was the first. During the 1880s, this parish opened a school, a convent, and the Sisters of Mercy Hospital, the only hospital in southwestern Colorado at that time. The second Durango Parish, Sacred Heart, was opened by the Theatine Fathers in 1906 for Italians and Mexicans who complained they had been slighted at St. Columba's. Father Mashbuff created three more parishes during the 1880s in southwestern Colorado. Robert Servant started St. Mary's in Montrose in 1883. Shortly afterwards, he reported to Bishop Mashbuff that he had been doing missionary work in Montrose when a gang of ladies from Oray more or less kidnapped him. In Oray, the, la- the ladies had Father Servant start hearing confessions at 6 p.m. Saturday night. Quote, I heard confessions until 12 o'clock that night. Father Servant reported and at 6 o'clock mass the next morning, quote, more than 100 received communion. Oray Catholics bought an old Protestant church and offered it to Bishop Mashbuff if he would only send a priest. In 1886, Mashbuff was able to oblige them by sending a resident priest, Lawrence M. Halton, to establish St. Patrick Parish. Two years later, Halton was succeeded by a renowned James Joseph Gibbons, who left a classic account of his area in his book entitled In the San Juan, Colorado Sketches. Another mining town parish that survives to this day is St. Patrick's in Silverton. St. Patrick's became a full-fledged parish in 1884 with the appointment of Edmund Lay as the first resident pastor. A later pastor, Cornelius O'Rourke, drowned while circuit riding among missions in Eureka, Telluride, Marshall Basin, Howardsville, and Red Mountain. To the mineral-rich San Juan Mountains, Colorado's most rugged and remote range, Mashbuff sent missionaries and parish builders on the hills of the mining rushes. Catholicism has a long, strong history in the silvery of San Juan, an accomplishment silverized by Silverton's huge marble shrine, Christ of the Mines. While mining towns burst suddenly into brilliant prominence and then faded, Denver showed more stability. The town had stagnated despite golden predictions during the 1860s. The arrival of railroads in 1870 changed all that. Denver's population subtupled from 4769 in 1870 to 37629 in 1880. Colorado, whose population had grown from 34277 in 1860 to 39864 in 1870, likewise began the boom. By 1890, the population of the state rose to 412198. In 1870, a third of the 47 churches in Colorado Territory were Catholic. Their numbers mushroomed during the 1870s and 1880s. Many of the 372,334 newcomers were Catholics, most notably Germans, Irish, and Italians. Father Mashbuff and his handful of priests were swamped. At the urging of Bishop LeMay in Santa Fe, church officials tried to help out. Despite his protest, Father Mashbuff was made Bishop of Colorado and Utah. He traveled to Cincinnati that year to receive the purple robes. Archbishop John B. Purcell 
with whom Mashbuff had come to America in 1839, consecrated him on August 16, 1864. The new bishop shared more apprehension than joy in a letter to his sister. Quote, I tremble at the thought of such a position. My responsibility is already too heavy. Pray always for the poor cripple. Pray earnestly for me and that the blessings of God may be on my future work in a diocese larger than the whole of France. To Bishop Mashba's relief, his huge vicariate was cut in half in 1871 when Utah was transferred to the San Francisco Archdiocese. The new bishop in 1873 transformed Denver's tiny St. Mary's Church into a miniature cathedral, extending it in front to the Stout Street sidewalk and adding side chapels. The infectious boisterism of the Queen City of the Mountains and Plains animated Mashbuff's June 22, 1872 epistle back to France. Quote, Denver has more than doubled its population in two years. We were obliged to transform and enlarge our church by additions to the front and both sides. St. Mary's was enlarged as Denver was rapidly becoming a city. The rail age ushered in a new urbanity that included the 1871 introduction of streetcars and gas street lighting, followed in 1872 by a drinking water system. Mashbuff, who never lost his love of gardening, was particularly delighted with the Denver City Water Company, whose drinkable water now supplemented the old ditch water system. Quote, its iron pi pipes are buried three feet under the principal streets, with hydrants in case of fire, and the lawns, gardens, and houses upon every floor are furnished with water. Our walks, bordered with shrubs and flowers, are sprinkled by means of rubber tubes which a child can handle, and the force of the water is such that a stream can be sent in any part of the yard by merely directing a nozzle. The streets are lined with trees, and the houses with their lawns give beauty and healthfulness. You see that our town is putting it into the airs of a great city. The once vacant prairie around St. Mary's blossomed with neat brick homes of prospering Denverites, including a small house Mashbuff built for himself next to the church. Bishop Mashbuff planted a white clover lawn and a garden where he grew onions and grapes, radishes, and green chili. The bishop's struggling vicariate also began to flourish. In 1875, Bishop Mashbuff awarded Colorado's first high school diploma to Jesse Forshee, who was graduating from St. Mary's Academy. Jesse Forshee later became Sister Mary Vitalis, a sister of a Loretto who founded the Loretto Magazine, taught at Loretto Heights College in Denver, and became Dean of Studies at Webster College in St. Louis. For St. Mary's Academy Matchbus Pet Project, he had purchased the home of George W. Clayton, a prominent pioneer businessman. This fine two-story frame house had cost Matchbus $4,000 in 1864. The spacious yard stretched from 14th to 15th streets along California Street and was only a block away from St. Mary's. To staff the church, Mashbuff sought out the Sisters Loretto. He was impressed with these nuns who had done so, so much work in New Mexico. Back in 1855, he had escorted a first contingent of sisters to Santa Fe Mother House in Kentucky. Nine years later, three of the sisters in Santa Fe agreed to come to Denver. Sisters Beatrice Mayas, Ignatia Mora, and Joanna Walsh slept little on the bouncy stagecoach ride from Santa Fe. Father Reverdy accompanied them and tried to assure them that they would not be scalped. That summer in 1864, Colorado was engaged in the bitter, bloody Indian War that would culminate in November 
with the massacre of Arapaho and Southern Cheyenne at Sand Creek. St. Mary's Academy, founded on June 27th, opened for business on August 1st, 1864. Even Protestants, eager to have some refinement in the wild and woolly town, celebrated. Now their daughters could learn French and be introduced to manners and to the liberal arts without going back east. Editor Byers of the Rocky Mountain News welcomed the sisters' school in his July 20, 1864 newspaper as a place where all Coloradans could develop the charming qualities of modest intelligence, generosity of character, and geniality of temper. Reinforcements reached St. Mary's Academy by years end with the arrival of sisters Anne Joseph Mattingly, Louisa Romero, and Agatha Wall. Matchbuff converted upstairs rooms of the Clayton House to a convent and helped the sisters of Loretto transform one room into a chapel. He doted on these young women who must have amazed the frontiersmen who stepped from Denver's rough wooden sidewalls into dirt streets to let them pass. In summer, Matchbuff pr proudly brought flowers and vegetables from his garden to the nuns. In winter, he chopped their wood. He looked forward to saying mass for them every day and teaching in their Sunday school. Five more sisters came to St. Mary's with Mashbuff when he returned to Denver in 1868 after being consecrated a bishop. By 1880, 19 nuns taught 40 boarding students as well as many days students, Catholic and non-Catholic. St. Mary's initially accepted boys, but as the number of female students increased, it was converted to an all-girls school. St. Mary's Academy, as the Rocky Mountain News noted on April 6, 1867, quote, flourished to a degree beyond the most sanguine hopes of its founders. Mashbuff began efforts to found a private boys' school, but was un unable to interest any of the orders until 1880s. In the meantime, Denver lads could get a Catholic education at the parish school that Mashbuff launched at St. Mary's in Denver in 1871. Although overshadowed by St. Mary's Academy, this parish school survived to become the Cathedral School. Like St. Mary's, it was staffed by the Sisters of Loretto. The First Order of Nuns to work in Colorado is still the state's largest sisterhood. At least a thousand of the Black Robe Sisters of Loretto have labored in the state since 1864. Their St. Mary's Academy is still the state's premier girls' school, and Loretto Heights for years was Colorado's only women's college. At first, Colorado seemed a wild and rugged land of godless gold seekers, a challenge to these civilizing sisters. Yet, Sister Joanna Walsh and the pioneer nuns at St. Mary's Academy found consolations. The climate and the scenery could be heavenly. On their journey from Santa Fe, Sister Joanna Walsh had persuaded Father Riverde and the driver to stop for a picnic at the Garden of the Gods, where she found, quote, the ground was literally carpeted with flowers of various hue. There had been for ages spread out in the panoramic beauty and born to blush unseen, till the speculators of the 19th century invaded their presence. But still more affecting was the sight of the monuments, never touched by sculptor chisel, Yet they stand in their various forms of fantastic grandeur and gigantic labor of tertiary seas honed out of sedimentary rock. One instinctively turns in admiration, praise, and adoration to consider the greatness and immobility of God. These nuns brought not only religion, but also the arts and sciences to Colorado. The highest state would become a stronghold 
on the order that it originated in what is now Loretto, Kentucky. When, on April 25, 1812, Mary Rhodes, Christina Stewart, and Anne Haverin had formed a religious community to educate the children of the Appalachian frontier. Charles Nerinx, a Flemish priest, became the sisters' mentor and helped them draw up a simple rule to guide the order. Besides St. Mary's Academy, the sisters conducted 16 other schools in Denver and throughout the state. In 1864 and 1868, Mashbuff asked Bishop Mage to send a colony of the sisters of charity to Leavenworth to Denver to start a hospital. Mashbuff acquired a 90-acre site, the St. Vincent's Addition, in what would become the Globeville neighborhood, but has projected St. Vincent Hospital never progressed past its foundations, which stood forlorn on the prairie for decades. Mashbuff and Roberti also raised hundreds of dollars for the Central City Invalids Home, only to have their fundraiser, James T. Rascal Ritchie, run off with the proceeds. In 1872, the first Sisters of Charity from Leavenworth arrived in Denver. After Miss William Perry donated a small home on 1421 Arapahoe Street, Sister Superior Joanna Bruner and Sisters Theodora McDonald, Veronica O'Hara, and Mary Claire Bergen opened Denver's first private hospital there on September 22, 1873. Bishop Mashbuff announced at the opening that the Sisters of Charity are now ready to receive patients without any distinction of nationality or creed. The Sisters did all the nursing, cooking, washing, and housekeeping, and a good deal of the doctoring. Their hospital filled rapidly, forcing the nuns to live in the attic and to use the kitchen as an operating room. Still, the sisters would not turn anyone away. They practiced their order's motto, quote, the greatest of these is charity. In 1874, the sisters moved their hospital to a larger building at 26 and Market Streets. Someone pointed out that Market Street was Denver's notorious red light district, filled with nymphs de pave, or soiled doves, and the brides of the multitude. When asked why they chose such a questionable location, Sister Joanna replied, quote, We'll take the question out of the neighborhood. Perhaps the sisters had second thoughts because shortly afterwards, they moved their hospital into the Wentworth House, later the St. James Hotel, at 1528 Curtis Street. They moved for one last time in 1873 to the northeast corner of East 18th Avenue and Humboldt, Street, where former territorial governor William Gilpin donated the first lot of what would become a multi-block complex. On moving to the new site in 1876, the sisters renamed their hospital St. Joseph's. They were honoring not only the foster father of Jesus, but also their own bishop, Joseph Matchbuff. St. Joseph's completed by 1878 a $40,000 80-bed hospital among its many supporters was John Evans, a staunch Methodist in Colorado's second territorial governor. He donated $1,000 in 1880, along with a note praising, quote, the devoted attention and skillful care given to the sick by the ladies of your order. Dennis Sheedy, a wealthy banker and cattleman, donated money and beef from his Greenland ranch. Another fan of St. Joseph was Miss J.J. Brown, later lionized as the unsinkable Molly Brown. She chaired the group which staged a gigantic citywide bazaar that raised $10,000 to expand St. Joseph's along Franklin and Humboldt streets. 
The Rocky Mountain News of August 31st, 1891 praised St. Joseph's for turning, quote, nobody from its stores. The sisters have hid themselves in the garret in order to make room for the increased number of sick. Such community support enabled the nuns to replace their 1879 building during the 1890s with a twin tower landmark designed by two of Denver's most prominent architects, the Barasian brothers. This eight-story brick hospital with 150 beds stood until the 1860s. Surviving admission books revealed that the first patient was a 26-year-old Dennis Morrow, who died a month later of one of the deadliest diseases in early Denver, typhoid. Other killers include acute alcoholism, consumption, insanity, mountain fever, pneumonia, and rheumatism, along with others. In one case, the sisters listed as a case of a patient's death, quote, was shot in a drunken row. In a violent town accustomed to, quote, leading poisoning and rope burn, these nursing sisters and the private physicians using their hospital offered the quaint treatments of 19th century medicine. In 1899, four years after the discovery of x-rays, St. Joseph's introduced this magical diagnostic aid to Denver. While physicians offered new experimental treatments along with classical solutions, bloodletting, cupping, and purging, the nuns resigned themselves to making death as comfortable and dignified as possible, preparing patients for the next life. A fifth of the patients were non-paying indignants who received the same general care as the wealthiest Coloradans who by 1900 were paying $25 a week for a private room. The Sisters of Charity were a welcome sight in early Colorado. They traveled the street in pairs in their distinctive black and white habit, begging for funds to continue their work at St. Joseph's and, in 1879, to open their second hospital, St. Vincent's in Leadville. The Good Sisters reported in Leadville Chronicle, in its front page welcome, quote, had heard that up here on the world's mountaintop was sickness, sorrow, and despair, and they come to comfort. At the sight of these sisters in the Silver City, the Chronicle continued, quote, Many a rough, long-bearded, coarsely apparelled miner uncovered his head. Miners gladly paid a dollar a month to St. Vincent's and other mining town hospitals, a fee that entitled them to full, free health care. St. Vincent's, which completed a new million-dollar hospital in 1964, still serves Leadville. Since 1895, the order has also owned and operated St. Mary's Hospital in Grand Junction. While the Sister of Charity in Leavenworth founded and ran hospitals, another mother house of the Sisters of Charity concentrated on Catholic education. The Sisters of Charity of Cincinnati first came to Colorado at the invitation of Bishop Mashbuff in 1869, when five nuns opened Holy Trinity School in Trinidad on a site donated by Don Philippe Baca. The Sisters Academy stood at the corner of Church and Convent Streets until 1926, when it moved into the new facility and added a high school program. The sisters from Cincinnati also opened Mount San Rafael Hospital in Trinidad in 1889. This large three-story stone building received many additions and improvements over the years, opening in 1893 what claimed to be the first Catholic nursing school west of the Mississippi River. Mount San Rafael served as the only major hospital in Las Animas County, during the 1970s, the county replaced the old structure with a larger, modern hospital. Denver's Mercy Hospital traces its origin to Bishop Mashbuff's 1889 request that the Sisters of Mercy open a home 
for working girls. That September, the nuns opened the Mater Misericordia home in a rented frame building in the 1600 block of Lincoln Street. Shortly afterwards, they moved their home to 19th and Stout Streets and changed the name to St. Catherine Home. In 1892, the Mercy Nuns bought a three-story brick building in the 1400 block of California Street from the Sister Loreto for $105,000 and then remodeled it as St. Catherine Home for Working Girls. Besides cheap room and board and an employment bureau, St. Catherine's offered a night school with courses in cooking, dressmaking, needlework, music, painting, and sewing. The Sisters of Mercy lost the St. Mary's site in the Panic of 1893, but by renting two floors at a hotel in 1650 California Street, they kept the home alive until 1899. That year, they moved into a building at East 16th Avenue and Detroit Street on the south side of City Park, where they operated St. Catherine Home. Shortly after 1900, the Sisters closed St. Catherine Home to concentrate their efforts on building a hospital. On August 27th, 1900, the sisters bought six lots at 16th and Milwaukee Streets for $4,650 and hired David Dryden, a Denver architect, to design the first building. This five-story blonde brick and red sandstone structure, executed in the Spanish colonial revival style, was dedicated on November 22, 1901 as the Mercy Sanitarium and Water Cure Institute for Lung and Nervous Diseases. In 1903, the sisters reorganized Mercy as a general hospital as its 50 beds soon filled. A $60,000 85-bed addition was completed in 1905. Newspaper men noted the hospital's bright decor, including highly polished floors covered with bright-colored Navajo rugs and walls tinted in soft pastel shades. In 1887, three sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration arrived in Colorado Springs to staff the Colorado Midland Railway Hospital in a small adobe house. A year later, the sisters replaced it with a four-story structure, the still thriving St. Francis Hospital and Sanitarium. The Sisters of St. Francis, founded in Germany in 1863, had opened their first American mother house in Lafayette, Indiana in 1875. They made Colorado Springs their western regional headquarters. To help the Union Pacific Railroad operate its new 66-bed hospital at East 40th Avenue and William Street in Denver, Bishop Mashbuff enlisted the Franciscan Sisters in 1884. These Franciscans had impressed railroad officials with their management of the main Union Pacific Hospital in the railroad's hometown of Omaha, Nebraska, and the company proudly gave Sister Beatrice to Superior and Sisters Haveria, Monica, Francisca, Columba, and Pauline a free ride to Denver. The contract between the nuns and the Union Pacific specified that the railroad would pay $5 per day per patient to the sisters. Furthermore, the railroad promised to furnish two horses, one ambulance, and two cows for hospital use. By 1889, 14 sisters worked at the Union Pacific Hospital in Denver where T.J. Fitzgerald served as chaplain. Bishop Mashbuff founded Colorado's first Catholic charity, the St. Vincent de Paul Society, on April 1, 1878, as a local unit of the worldwide founded in Paris by St. Vincent de Paul. By the 1880s, this society had raised and spent several thousand dollars a year on Colorado indignance, a mission it still pursues. Although the DePaul Society did what it could, the growing number of homeless children in the streets of Denver inspired Bishop Mashbuff to build the city's first substantial orphanage. 
the bishop persuaded the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad to donate a site on the west side of Lowell Boulevard between West 41st and 44th Avenues. Then he enlisted the Sisters of Charity of Leavenworth to open a Mount St. Vincent Orphan Asylum on September 1st, 1882, and is soon filled with 200 wafts. After finding the asylum for boys, Bishop Mashbuff visited the Sisters of the Good Shepherd in St. Louis and persuaded them to open a Denver home for homeless and wayward girls on September 18, 1883. The Mother Superior of the Good Shepherd Home reported that Denver girls as young as 10 were being exploited by pimps and began offering refuge to penitents, magdalens, and preservates. At first, the sisters cared for these girls in two-frame houses on Gallipo Street. In 1885, they moved to a larger home of the Good Shepherd on Cherokee Street between Seder and Byers Avenues. Among the 300 girls there by 1900 were approximately 50 Sioux from North Dakota. Forty miles south of Colorado Springs, the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad revived Pueblo, an old town dating to the 1840s at the confluence of Fountain Creek and the Arkansas River. Pueblo had emerged as a trading fort and center for Spanish, French, and American mountain men. After the railroad arrived in the 1870s and the establishment of a steel mill, Pueblo quickly urbanized and requested parish status from Bishop Mashbuff, who remembered the place from his 1860 stop on the way up to Denver. Then Pueblo had been an adobe hamlet occupied by a few trappers and traders with a sprinkling of miners and Mexicans. Father Mashbuff had stopped long enough to say mass, validate a few marriages, and baptize a number of children. Afterwards, Mashbuff and Raverty had visited Pueblo on mission trips. In 1872, Mashbuff assigned Charles Pinto, S.J., as the first resident priest in Pueblo. A year later, Father Pinto had completed St. Ignatius Church and the Sisters Loretto from Denver opened Loretto Academy in 1875. The Sisters of Charity of Cincinnati were also active in Pueblo, where they conducted parochial schools at one time or another in St. Patrick, St. Francis Xavier, and St. Therese parishes, as well as Pueblo Catholic High School. Trinidad, a city near the Colorado-New Mexico border, was made a mission in 1866, and the first Holy Trinity Church was completed shortly afterwards. Four years later, the Sisters of Charity of Cincinnati established a convent and school in Trinidad. Sister Fidelis wrote to the mother house that Trinidad looked like, quote, a hiding place for thieves and murderers, and everybody speaks Spanish. In hopes of taming this tough town, the Sisters of Charity also volunteered to teach in Trinidad's first public school, an old adobe house donated in 1870 by Don Philippe Baca. In 1887, Trinidad had a public school, a private day school, and a private boarding school, all conducted by the Sisters of Charity in Cincinnati. Trinidad's dirt-floored, adobe-walled, mud- and pole-roofed chapel was replaced by the fine stone church of the Holy Trinity after the Jesuits took over in 1875. From Holy Trinity, the Jesuits tended 27 different missions in a ranch and coal mining towns of Las Animas County. Bishop Matchbuff and later Bishop Matz made a practice of visiting the church every year for the Feast of the Holy Trinity. In northeastern Colorado, the rise of agricultural towns at Fort Collins, Longmont, Brighton, Yuma, and Platteville brought pleas to Bishop Matchbuff to send priests and open missions, if not parishes. Mashbuff had visited French-Canadian trappers in Laporte, 
and the Cache Poudre River in 1861 and watched with interest the establishment near Fort Collins. As the fort grew into a town, Bishop Mashbuff purchased the old schoolhouse for $400 in 1878 and refitted it as St. Joseph's, the first Catholic church in Larimer County. Longmont, a Boulder County farm town established in 1871 by the Chicago, Colorado colony, included several Irish Catholics. After first meeting for mass in the section house of railroad foreman Michael O'Connor, Catholics donated a site on which St. John the Baptist Church was built in 1882. Bryden had originally been a missionary stop for William Howlett, the historian and priest who tended the towns northeast of Denver and the Platte Valley. Father Howlett, in his manuscript, History of Colorado Parishes, reported that he built a small brick church in Brighton in 1887 that he and parishioners named for St. Augustine. Fifteen miles further down the South Platte River, Father Howlett also helped establish St. Nicholas Parish in Platteville in 1889. Out on the Eastern Plains, Bishop Mashbuff established another Catholic toehold in 1888, St. John's in Yuma. Mashbuff, while struggling to gain a foothold in heavily Protestant northern Colorado, did not neglect the South where Catholicism prevailed. In those times of religious rivalry, Mashbuff was distressed to hear that Tom Tobin, a prominent pioneer rancher, had allowed John L. Dyer, a Methodist minister, to hold services at his ranch. Dyer recalled in his autobiography, The Snowshow Interrent, that Tobin was less hospital on his second visit. Reverend Dyer discovered that Mashbuff had complained to Tobin's Catholic wife, who had her husband put a stop to any Protestant services on his ranch southwest of Fort Garland. Dyer, one of the few Protestant ministers to undertake missionary work in southern Colorado, complained that Mashbuff, quote, taught that none but Catholic clergy could solemnize marriage or do anything right. One of the most respected and successful missionaries in Colorado who continued to work, adding that, unlike Mashbuff and his priests, I have a wife to help me. In his book, Dyer claimed, quote, that the Roman Catholics were reformed more by Protestants than by other means. He may have been right. Critical scrutiny by Protestants probably helped keep Colorado Catholics on their best behavior. At any rate, they avoided major scandals such as those with which LeMay and Matchbuff had wrestled in New Mexico. Anti-Catholicism was relatively mild in Colorado, but evident in such documents as the 1876 state constitution, which specified Protestant chaplains for the legislature. Admiration, rather than hostility, was expressed by the first Episcopal missionary bishop of Colorado, George M. Randall. In Bishop Randall's first report to the Board of Missions of the Protestant Episcopal Church in 1866, he declared, quote, We must learn wisdom from the Romanist. Their priests are indeed ever in the vanguard of their missionary army, but their school teachers follow them closely after. They exhibit a tender solicitude for the lambs of their folds. Episcopalians are sending their daughters to the convent, St. Mary's Academy in Denver, because it's the best school in the territory. Sectarian differences gave way to personal regard in many cases and to admira admiration for accomplishments in the face of adversity. John Evans said of Matchbuff, quote, He knew I was an earnest Protestant, but our friendship never faltered on that account. He was too wise and just and good. Bishop Mashbuff was not only a good Christian, he was a good, patriotic, and enterprising citizen. 
He labored in all the things promote the ascendancy of the Catholic Church. A motive that brings forth such works as these cannot be essentially bad. I have cooperated in a small way in most of his charitable labors. He not only aided the poor with a crust of bread and cup of cold water, but he organized societies for their relief. He heard an orphan's cry and founded asylums. He early saw the importance of education, and he founded schools, seminaries, and colleges. Mr. Mashboff's strong defense of Catholic schools drew much criticism. At the 1876 Denver Convention to draft a state constitution, he and other religious leaders fought successfully to exempt churches, religious schools, and charities from taxation. Mashboff further argued that public education funds should be allotted to Catholic schools, but he failed to persuade the convention. Mashboff's championship of Catholic schools and advice for his flock to avoid public schools, if at all possible, led Aaron Gove, the able longtime superintendent of Denver Public Schools, to declare that according to the January 18, 1878 Rocky Mountain News, quote, the Catholic Church is an enemy of the public school. It is an honest, consensuous, and honorable opposition, but it is nonetheless an opposition and we must meet it at all honorable means. Bishop Mashbuff's struggle to build and staff Colorado pioneer parishes was compounded by the intense rivalry among immigrant groups. Mashbuff had dealt with ethnic factions in New Mexico, trying to reconcile sometimes violent differences among Indians, Hispanics, and other nationalities. The Frenchman fully acknowledged the pioneer role of Hispanics in planting Catholicism in Colorado. Quote, Everywhere, we have seen proof of the zeal and devotion of the first Spanish missionaries who came to water with their sweat and their blood this earth, Mashbuck declared. On his arrival in Denver in 1860, Mashbuck had been greeted by a few Frenchmen, including G. Girard. Although a few other Frenchmen, many of them old trappers and traders, also welcomed Mashbuck, he found Germans to be the most common foreign-born group in Colorado. At their urging, he authorized creation of Colorado's first national parish, St. Elizabeth German Parish in Denver in 1878. The national parish designation allowed the parish to incorporate the members' native tongue and culture into its liturgy and activities. Latin, of course, remained the official language of the Mass. National parishes welcomed all members of their ethnic group regardless of where they resided. French-born priests in St. Mary's and German-born priests in St. Elizabeth's prompted other ethnic groups to request their own parishes. Sacred Heart in 1879, the third parish in Denver was guided by an Italian. Mashbuff recruited John B. Guida, S.J., the first of a procession of Jesuits to preside over Sacred Heart. The Irish, second in numbers only to the Germans among Colorado's foreign-born Catholic contingent, Ballyhooed creation of St. Patrick's, the first North Denver parish in 1881. The Irish considered themselves Americans with the implication that they spoke English, unlike the foreign French, Italian, and German Americans. With the arrival of Father Joseph Kerrigan at St. Patrick's in 1885, the Irish had a parish to call their own. Mashbuff once revealed to his sister the pressure he felt, quote, Everywhere it is churches and schools to build or repair, new parishes to start, money to borrow, and I must seat all of it myself. On Saturday and Sunday, I'm a priest and bishop. On Monday and the rest of the week, I am banker, contractor, architect, mason, collector, in a word, a little of everything. Mashbuff became a familiar character around Denver, a simple gray-haired man, small in stature, and limping painfully on his visits to churches, schools, and hospitals. 
His demeanor was described by Sister Blandina Segal in her autobiography at the end of the Santa Fe Trail. Quote, I have often noticed his very kind eyes, eyes full of sympathy, which show at a glance that his thought was for others. His lower lip has the expression of a good grandmother who fears she's never done enough for all of us who belong to her. He has survived many illnesses and accidents in his long lifetime, both on the streets of Denver on mountain trails. Of Mashbuff's stamina, Howlett wrote, quote, His will fortified his body, which was so accustomed to finding its rest in action that it would not be strange if when death came it found him standing on his feet. News of the death of his great lifelong friend, Archbishop LeMay, who had been like a brother, grieved Mashbuff. He hastened to Santa Fe on February 1888 to speak at LeMay's funeral. Mashbuff may have sensed in his great sorrow that his own call would come next. Later in 1888, he was president in Washington for the laying of the cornerstone of the Catholic University of America, but his strength was slipping. The bishop reserved for himself a little room in St. Vincent Asylum, where it was his custom to retire for rest and quiet. On July 3, 1889, he went to this retreat. There he calmly died on the morning of July 10th, having received the last sacraments from the hands of Bishop Matz. His body lay in state in chapel of St. Mary's Academy. Thousands came to pay their last respects. Nearly a hundred priests were present at his funeral on July 16, 1889, when the temporary tomb was prepared beneath the sanctuary of St. Mary's Academy Chapel. In 1891, after Bishop Matz opened Mount Olivet Cemetery, the remains of Bishop Mashbuff were interned there in an 800-pound cassock of solid cast iron with a glass top. Each of the priests present took up a handful of dirt, blessed it, and threw it gently upon the casket. Monsignor Raverday, Bishop's close friend and vicar general, was returning from Chicago when news reached him of Mashbuff's death. Raverday himself was ill with a fatal disease, but he hurried on to Denver, arriving in the arms of assistants during the funeral service. A chair was placed near the coffin, where Raverty wept over the corpse of his dear friend and prepared for his own death. It came barely four months later. Bishop Mashbuff's role may be best summed up by Howlett's words. When Father Mashbuff came to Colorado in 1860, he was alone with Father Raverty. Without a single church, a roof over his head, when he was made bishop, he had but three priests within his jurisdiction. When he died, the Diocese of Denver counted 64 priests, 102 churches and chapels, nine academies, one college, one orphan asylum, one house of refuge, 10 hospitals, and over 3,000 children in Catholic schools. This was primarily the work of one man, and that man was Bishop Matchbuff. In contemplating it, it must concede that its author was a great priest, a great bishop, and merited well the title by which prosperity shall know him, the Apostle of Colorado. Hundreds of now forgotten nuns did saintly work in the Denver Archdiocese over the years, but only one of them would be canonized. Coloradans liked its claim, Francesca Maria Cabrini as their own. So do many of the other places where she founded schools, hospitals, and orphanages, from New York to Nicaragua, from Liverpool to L.A., from Paris to Rio de Janeiro, from Chicago to Granada, from New Orleans to her birthplace in Lodi in Italy. A flock of white doves came to rest on the home of Agostino and Stella Cabrini on July 15, 1850. 
the day their 13th and last child was born. Other legendary signs also suggested that, that the sickly little girl would become an energetic world-traveling saint. As a child, she created convents, dressing her dolls as nuns. She made little paper boats and filled them with violets, which she said were her missionary flowers of faith. Locked church doors opened at her touch. At 24, she began teaching orphans. At 30, she founded the Missionary Sisters of the Sacred Heart. She so impressed Pope Leo XIII by setting up a school in Rome that the Holy Father officially blessed her next endeavor, comforting Italian immigrants who were flocking to America by the millions. She would take 67 trips in America and found 67 institutions. Her first voyage came in 1889 when she visited New York City's Little Italy, where she started an orphanage, a hospital, and West Park, the first American novitiate for her missionary sisters. Mother Cabrini's reputation as a miracle worker brought her appeals from all over the United States. Two pleas came from Father Mariano Lapore of Denver's Mount Carmel Parish and from Bishop, Bishop Matz, urging her to come and work her magic among the Italians. Mother Cabrini came to Denver on October 24, 1902, blessing Mount Carmel Parish with her gentle strength. Michael Notary, a leading Italian, loaned her his house at 34th and Navajo to use as a school, the first for Mount Carmel Parish. The large brick home is now a designated Denver landmark. In 1904, Mother Cabrini and the missionary sisters purchased a large farmhouse and several acres of land at West 48th Avenue and Federal Boulevard in North Denver. The recycled farm opened in 1905 as the Queen of Heaven Orphanage for girls aged 2 to 15. Queen of Heaven soon reached its capacity of 160 orphans, and in 1920 a magnificent new buff brick orphanage opened its doors. This large neoclassical structure graced the Denver skyline with an illuminated statue of Queen of Heaven atop the lofty tower. The orphanage was recognized in 1965 as a private elementary boarding school for girls and renamed the St. Cabrini Memorial Private School. In January 1957, the Queen of Heaven Orphanage sold 16 of its 43 lots to the Colorado Highway Department for construction of Interstate Highway 70. Twelve years later, the home and school closed and were demolished. Mother Cabrini became a naturalized citizen of the United States in 1909. While spending much of her time in Chicago and New York, she made several visits to Denver's Mount Carmel Parish and Queen of Heaven Orphanage. She also toured mining towns where many immigrant Italians worked 10 or 12 hours a day underground. Defying superstitions against allowing women inside mines, she rode cage hoists down into the depths to bring message of salvation. My good brothers, she would say, we come down into the bowls of the earth to you in the name of your creator, he who pines for your filial love. On a 1912 visit to Denver, Mother Cabrini packed up her nuns for a picnic in the mountains. The captain of the firehouse on Tejon Street, if one of the many North Denver fork tells about Mother Cabrini is true, regularly took the sisters for such Sunday outings. When accused of using the fire department horses for these excursions, the chief supposedly replied, quote, As long as Mother Cabrini is with our fire horses, there never has been or never will be a fire in North Denver. Upon reaching Mount Vernon Canyon, Mother Cabrini and some of her sisters climbed up the highest hill in sight. Overwhelmed with the splendid view of Denver in the Front Range, the sisters gathered white stones and arranged them in the shape of a heart to represent the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Inspired by the outing, Mother Cabrini somehow managed to buy the 900-acre hilltop site. 
she was warned there was no water but, according to legend, moved the rock to uncover a still flowing stream of artisan water which served the summer home for orphan girls that Mother Cabrini and the missionary sisters constructed. In 1929, the spring was converted into a grotto, modeled after the great shrine of lords in France, so all could come to sample the waters of Mother Cabrini. An anonymous donor contributed $1,000 for a life-size marble statue of Mother Cabrini, a replica of her statue in St. Peter's in Rome. On July 11, 1954, the missionary sisters of the Sacred Heart erected a $15,000 Italian-made 22-foot-high statue of their patron, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, atop Mount Vernon. Mother Cabrini died in Chicago on December 22, 1917 at Columbus Hospital, which she had founded. After a lengthy investigation verified her miraculous work, she was canonized by Pope Pius XII on July 7, 1946. Her body lies in her principal shrine, Mother Cabrini High School in New York City. At the time of her death, she had founded 75 convents, recruited 3,000 women for the, to the Missionary Sisters of the Sacred Heart. In Colorado, this small, gentle nun with big, brown, unforgettable eyes is remembered in many parishes with an altar statue. Her shrine above Mount Vernon Canyon, now a favorite stop for travelers, also perpetuates the cherished memory of this world-famous saint who, at Bishop Matt's request, labored briefly but productively in the Denver Diocese.